0: Hey, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're so glad that you're here. I'm one of the pastors here at Ramsey Creek. My name is Rod. If you are new or maybe you've been here for a while, but you're just not sure of all of our history, in between the sanctuary and the worship center here where you can give your offering, there are some of these pamphlets and it gives information about our church. It also gives some information about how we can help if you're in need of anything. So please pick one of those up on your way out. We would love for you to have it, and if you have any questions, you can come see me afterwards or you can email us through the website, that sort of thing. We're glad that you're here this morning. I'm glad that you're here this morning. I'm excited to preach today on this text about cause and effect and just what Jason was talking with the kids about. You'll see the title of the message this morning is called Confident Children. You'll understand why I say that in just a few moments, but I want to recap a little bit from last week, bring us up to speed. We learned... What John meant last week in chapter 2 when he talked about, he used the word antichrist. It's a word that's specific to John, and he uses that term to refer to people who specifically who oppose or attack Jesus, his work, his person, and what he has said. So antichrists are a word that John uses for people who oppose the Messiah, they specifically oppose who he is what he has done, and what Jesus has said. And so it's obvious from the way that John writes this letter, and especially the portion that we're in it right now, he's concerned that his readers might be swayed by the false teachings that these kind of people are proposing. And he's afraid that they may abandon correct doctrine in favor of some of these other things that are being taught, a more man-centered theology from these people. This isn't a small thing not today either. And John doesn't treat it as small. And so he uses some words in last week's text. He used the word last hour. And you can see that in some of the script, some of the verses before the ones we're looking at this morning, but he uses those to help us understand the urgency of what he's talking about. It's he's, he's being urgent in this. When he uses the word last hour, he's talking about the time frame between Christ's coming and his second coming. So we are in, the way John would describe, we're in the last hour today. We're in the last days, as other biblical authors put it. Even though only the Father knows when Christ will return, Jesus himself says this, knowing and believing that he is returning, that he is coming soon, should absolutely change the way that we live. It should change us. John also said that Christians have both the anointing of the Spirit and the Word of Christ. And then he says, hey, abide in these things. Abide in them. Remain in them. So let's look at our text. Now we're at 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And we're going to read verse 28 through the third verse of chapter 3. These are all kind of connected here. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Read with me, and then we'll have another word of prayer. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray. God, anoint your word as you have said that you do. Lord, anoint it and raise it up in our minds to be the absolute authority, not what Newsweek is telling us, not what Fox News is telling us, not what CNN is saying. Lord, help your word, your inspired word, to guide and direct not only our lives, but Lord, how we think and how we process world events and how we treat our wives and children, our spouses, how we... Treat our teachers and our co-workers and our bosses. Help your word to inform and direct all of these things. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So notice at the beginning of our text, in verse 28, John uses this phrase that he's used several times before. He says, little children. Okay. Several weeks back, we talked about how there were two different words that John uses for the, the word children. This one is one that he used at the very beginning that means the whole congregation, believers. So all of the church, so he's not referring necessarily here to the immature new Christians, the young little children in Christ. He's, he's referring to all the Christians in the church, okay? And he repeats his instruction. Remember, when you hear something repeated in Scripture, listen. Because the author has an important point he's trying to make by repetition, We still do this in writing today. We still do this in the songs that we sing. We repeat the same thing for emphasis. John's doing that here, and he repeats the phrase, Abide in Him. Little children, abide in Him. And then he gives some specific like results or blessings that come a Christian's way when they do abide in Christ. There's some results. He says, Abide... So that when he appears, talking about Christ, we may have confidence and may not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So, if you weren't convinced yet already, John is establishing very clearly here that Jesus is coming again. The Bible teaches that Jesus will come again when he appears at his coming. These are references to upcoming events not things that have already taken place. So yeah, Jesus was there. John knew it. He was with him in the flesh. But he's coming again, something that's coming in the future. But John's not just telling his readers, you and I, people in that day, he's not just telling us to be completely focused on future events that we miss what's going on now. John gives them warnings. He's giving them instructions. He's giving them encouragement here on how to live today. Right now in light of Christ's future return. So we're looking forward to something that affects us in our lives today. This is kind of how he's broken it down so far. He says, Because you know Jesus will return, love him and not the world. Right? We've already looked at that in chapter 2. He also says, Because you know he's returning soon, stay devoted and attached to him, not the world. Because you know that there are those out there who oppose the Messiah... Let what you heard from the beginning remain in you or abide in you. Stay continuously anchored to the word of God. That's what John is saying. So, title of my sermon, Confident Children Today. That's the title, but I want us to understand that no child of God is confident in themselves or their own work, but in the confidence that they have by abiding in Christ. That's where our confidence comes from. I think this is a question, and I've referenced this before, that every Christian or person who's claimed the name of Christ, that they're going to ask themselves, they're going to wrestle with at some point, and that's just this, am I really saved? Is what I claim to be true of my life actually true? When I breathe my last on this earth, will I really go to heaven based on what Christ has said, Jesus has said? By the Spirit, John The apostle writing this gives an affirmation to this question. He says, yes, as you're abiding in Christ, you can be confident. If you're abiding in Christ, you can have confidence and not shame when he comes again. Confidence here means boldness. As from the scripture I read at the beginning of the service this morning from Hebrews, may we have boldness to go to the throne. Maybe we have confidence to go to the throne. John uses this word again, and he uses it here in chapter 2. He uses it again in chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. And in chapter 4, verse 17, he says that we can have boldness or confidence in the day of judgment. That's the kind of that day that we're looking forward to that John is pointing our minds to when Christ comes again. That's a day of judgment. Here's the first question for us to kind of think about inwardly this morning. What gives you confidence? Sometimes we look for confidence in our abilities, our talents. If you're really good at something, you take confidence in that. People are going to like you. Sometimes our reputation is what gives us confidence. Our personality sometimes can give us confidence. Maybe a life motto, well, I go back to that. That gives me confidence. All of these things. But what gives you confidence when you think about the judgment day? If that is a day that is coming and the Bible teaches that it is, what gives you confidence on that day? Maybe it's the signature that's in the front of your Bible that you wrote when you were a kid. Maybe it's your perfect church attendance. Maybe it's your childhood repetition of a particular prayer that gives you confidence when you think about the day of judgment. But what should the confidence of the believer be? Any of those things I just mentioned? The confidence of the believer comes from abiding in Christ. We have confidence in who he is, and we have confidence in what he has done, but John says here that we can have only have confidence if we are abiding in him in those things. I think that the reaction that we have to thinking about seeing Christ when he comes again reveals much about our current spiritual condition. If we look forward to that day with expectation and hope and joy and a day that we can't wait to celebrate that says something about our relationship with christ but if we look forward to that day with dread or fear or anxiety or worry because we're not sure that also says something about our relationship with christ on that day are we going to run toward him you guys have all have had little children run up to you when a little kid runs up to you with their arms stretched up how do you respond you don't just stand there And pat them on the head. Maybe if they're not your kid, you might do that. But if it's your kid and they run up to you with their arms up, you reach down and you scoop them up. Even if your legs are burning, you're gonna, you're gonna pick them up. It's fire in your legs, but you're gonna do it because they're your kid and they're running up to you with arms wide open. They're confident that you're gonna pick them up. But what's, what's the alternative that John mentions in this passage? The alternative is not Running with your arms wide open, it's shrinking back in shame. The posture that we see in our minds as we think about this day of judgment can show us where we need to go from here. I don't know where you're at. When you think of this, what pops into your mind? I don't know. But you do, and now's the time to start. Now's the time to trust in God and His Word and make changes in your life according to salvation. So are we approaching the throne with confidence today or shame. Now let me be clear. J- uh, Jacob by the spirit already mentioned shame this morning after that first song is that we're all sinners but without Christ we will bear that shame all on our own and we will not hold up against it. But let me be clear, God doesn't want any of his beloved children to cower back in shame. It's not what God has for you. If you are his child, shame has no place to rule over you. He's redeemed your shame. He is redeeming your shame today. He bore every ounce of it on the cross. He's taken it away. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, shame holds no power because of Christ. Paul says in Romans 8.1, your verse you're probably familiar with, there is no condemnation in Christ. There's no shame. But be sure to notice what Paul says. I just quoted Romans 8.1. He says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Paul agrees with John here. Paul says in Christ, those who are in Christ. John says in verse 28, in him. Talking about Jesus Christ. Our confidence cannot come from our performance. It's like getting stuck in a muddy field and spinning your tires. You give a lot of effort, you spend a lot of energy, but you get nowhere. Our confidence doesn't come from our performance, our knowledge, or even our abilities, none of those things. Look, I I get, I'm repeating myself a lot in this, but I, I, I feel like it's something that we need to hear. Our confidence comes from the person and work of Jesus Christ and nothing else nothing else, not us, not some outside force besides him, him alone. So even John's stipulation of confidence based on our abiding in him is a work that the Spirit does within God's children. Think about this. Paul also lays this out in the book of Romans, specifically chapter 3. He says that no one would seek the Lord without the Spirit. No one would do good were it not for the Spirit No one, certainly, would then abide in him either were it not for the Spirit. But get this, the work of the Spirit, the Spirit's work, does not take the responsibility for right living out of the Christian's hands. It actually gives power and perseverance to those hands. Look at verse 29. John says, if you know that he is righteous, do you think that John knows that Jesus is righteous? Of course. So this is this is kind of a rhetorical question. John's already established that God does not lie. There's no darkness in him at all. Of course he's righteous. And he says, if you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So think about that phrase, has been born, for a moment. This phrase, has been born, is a perfect tense verb has been born. So it, this can be used to describe something that's happened in the past, but is still continuing on today. Think about it this way. You say, well, my friend Bob, he's worked for the police department for the last 10 years. He has been for 10 years and he's continuing to work for them today. So a Christian has been born of God, however long ago that you came to faith in Christ, but you're still being born of him today. New and every day. The Bible has a word for this. Sanctification. That's what it is. Big, long, biblical word. It's good to know. Sanctification. From the moment of salvation to the moment that you see the face of Jesus, to the moment that you see him face to face, you are being sanctified. You are being made more and more into his likeness. John says that everyone who has been born of him then results in something. That person practices righteousness. And here comes what Jason was talking with you kids about this morning, cause and effect. Okay? Adults, you you get this too. There's a relationship between two events where one is the result of the other. So if you know anything about physics or you've been in school recently and you remember this stuff still, Newton had something to say about this. The third law says that for every action, there is an Equal and opposite reaction. Okay, that's, that's Newton's law. This is why if you have small kids, and many of you do, if you have small kids and you have stairs in your house, guaranteed your kids is gonna go over and drop things down the stairwell, right? Are my kids the only ones who do this? Okay, and it's, sometimes it's stuff that you don't want them to drop down a stairwell, right? Remote controls, phones, not just pillows and balls, but they do that. And why do you think kids do that? Katie, why do, you, why do we do that? Well, sometimes it's to get it. Thank you for confessing that this morning. And no, I think you're absolutely right. It's the same reason why adults, maybe teenagers, especially guys, when you go and you're standing over a cliff, what do you want to do? It's like just innate. You want to either spit a loogie... Or you want to throw a rock. I mean, just be real this morning. Katie and I are confessing here today. That's what you want to do when you're standing over a cliff. You want to see what happens. You want to see how it goes when it goes down and gets to the bottom. What sound does it make when it gets to the bottom? This is why kids throw stuff down the stairwell. Cause and effect. So John, the author here, he uses this principle, long before Isaac Newton ever figured it out, in verse 29. And he says that the action is being born of God and the reaction is practicing righteousness. You see that? When we practice righteousness and we do what is right, we are revealing that our hearts have indeed been born of God, that we have been born again. So God's action of regeneration causes the reaction of continued righteousness in a Christian. Let me say that again. Kids, those were the the two big R words. God's action of regeneration causes the reaction of continued righteousness in a Christian. One follows the other. Now, this doesn't say, and I don't think this means either, that the Christian is going to live a perfect life. But it does mean continual Regular, consistent, not, not sinless perfection, but tenacious effort. If you've ever been part of a sports team, you understand that sometimes practice can just be no fun at all. Just no fun. You know, in the first couple of weeks of basketball practice, your conditioning, sometimes you don't even pick up a basketball. That's no fun. Like, I didn't sign up to just come and run and throw up in the corner. That's not what I, wanted to be a part of a team for. But when you're on a team and you're working towards something, practice is kind of tough. And at the beginning of the season, especially if it's a team of young kids, you shouldn't expect perfection. You shouldn't expect perfect execution right off the bat, right? I mean, even guys and girls making millions of dollars to play their sports don't do it perfectly every time. And that's why it's called practice because people are refining their skills. They're learning from their mistakes. They're improving at the sport that they're participating in. Christian here today, you don't do everything perfectly either. You'd probably be one of the first people to admit that. Yeah, I'm not perfect. We should be quick to admit that. I, I also, this is sort of a pet peeve of mine, but we can't use our sinless imperfection as an excuse for continued sin that bugs me when christians say well don't judge me you sin too no that's not our response our response is you're exactly right about my sin thank you for pointing it out god is dealing with that and we'll continue we're not going to be perfect especially not right away it takes think about practice it takes time it takes effort to rely on the lord to resist temptation, to repent of sin, to abide in the word. So again, John is referring not to sinless perfection here, but a consistent desire to practice righteousness. How many of you guys know my dad, Dale Omis? If you want to know what I look like will look like in 30 years, you can, you can look at a picture of my dad. Actually, about 10 years ago, I was walking down a hall in church here, and I, I cleared my throat. I went, <clears> throat> and it sounded exactly like my father. And I stopped. I thought, man, Dale Omos, where are you? He's around here somewhere. Full confession, there's apps on your phone that can make you look old. You guys ever seen those? You know what I'm talking about? I refused to do them for a long time, and then one day I just decided to do it, and it freaked me out. I almost showed you today, but I didn't want to give you bad dreams. Um, <laughs> but I look like I, I knew I took the picture, and I still thought it was a picture of my dad. It was weird. I I know what I'm going to look like in 30 years. And it's funny. I was, we were going through some family pictures and some things a couple of years ago. And I saw a picture that had some writing on the back and I I took it to my dad. and I said, Hey, look at this. It's got grandma's writing on the back. It wasn't my grandma's writing. It was my dad's writing. It looked exactly like my grandma's writing. I was indistinguishable to me. He only knew because he remembered writing it on that picture. A lot of you look like your fathers. Some of you look like your mothers. Some of you act exactly like your parents, too. That's just how it goes in a family, right? As a kid, you're going to turn out to be more and more like your parents, usually. Hopefully in all of the good ways and not the bad ways. If you want to know what I'm going to look like one day, look at my dad. And I think it's the same way in God's family, too. If we're going to know what we're going to look like one day as a Christian, as a a son or daughter of God, we need not to look at other Christians or even inwardly, where do we need to set our attention? On the Father, the one who we want to look like more and more. So as we grow in God's family, we're going to grow to, to look more like him, to act more like him, and to talk more like the Father. Our practice every day, our regular, consistent practice is proof of who our Father is. Our practice is proof of who our Father is. If there's no darkness in God, the Father, and His children are supposed to abide in Him and walk in the light, as we're told to in 1 John, then our lives more and more are going to be rid of the darkness that seems to start to invade more and more. We're going to be shedding that faster, faster more quickly, not be bound by it as quickly. If we are born of God, we're going to act more and more like him. But I think verse 29 also does more than just suggest that only those who have been born of God can practice righteousness at all. I think it tells us that clearly here. The only way to practice righteousness is to have been born of God and only people who have been born of God can practice righteousness. This leads me to this next point in your notes. Our own righteousness is predicated on a recognition of Christ's righteousness. What I mean is that if a person never knows or admits or confesses the perfect righteousness of Christ, then they have not been born of God. And they cannot practice righteousness at all. Only those who have been born of God can practice righteousness. And it goes back to the action and reaction thing. If the action of regeneration has not happened, then there will be no reaction of practicing righteousness. One follows the other and is caused by the other. Only the righteous Savior can produce righteous saints. Now, look down at your text. We've got verses 1 through 3 to go through. I want to move through them quickly but thoroughly as much as we can. Last year, Nikki and I celebrated our 15th anniversary. Not... So in 2019, and we, we flew to uh, Waco, Texas, really some other place. And then we drove to, yeah. But we flew there. And while we were in the airport, and I'm not in airports much, but while we were in the airport, we were walking around. It was early in the morning. We are waiting for our flight. And I just happened to look down, and guess what I found? I found a silver dollar, a Morgan or something. It's like 18 99 silver dollar, laying on the floor in Lambert Airport. So I kind of paused, and I, I saw it, and I looked around, and no one came running after it. So I picked it up, and then I went to the bathroom, and I doused it in soap and, clean, and cleaned it real good. But I, I, I found this little silver dollar. And so it's not, like, expensive. I don't think it's really worth all that much, even if it's even a real one. I'm not sure. But for the, for the next couple of weeks, I would take that and say, hey, check out what I found. When we were waiting in the airport, I'd show people. I'd say, man, this thing is cool. I wouldn't go spend any money to get this sort of thing. But, you know, it's if it's real, it's 100, 100 plus years old. For some reason, I was, I'm proud of that coin. And I showed it to a bunch of people. And I'd hold it up and say, man, isn't that cool? Isn't that neat? And it was just laying there. I think John does that same kind of thing in verse 1 here. Look down at chapter 3, verse 1. See? It's like he's holding this thing up. He's saying, look. Look at this thing. Isn't it cool it's in see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. He holds up the love of God and he marvels at it. He says, look at it. Look at how cool this is. Look at what kind of love the father has for us that we would be called his children. We're made in his image under common grace But we now have a personal love of the Father. If you're in Christ, you have the love of the Father. You've been given a brand new heart. You've been adopted into his family. And get this, he has left an eternal inheritance for you. Forever. More than we could think or imagine. And God is the one who's done this. The Father has given his love that we might be called his children And John says, and that's what we are. Just plain and simple, matter of fact, it's what you are. You're a child. And if you are God's child here this morning, no matter what you're wrestling with, no matter what you're dealing with or going through, if you run to God with your arms up, he's not going to just stand there and pat you on the head. He's going to wrap you up in his arms because you're his child. The last part of verse 1 in chapter 3 says that the world doesn't understand this. The world does not get this kind of relationship because it doesn't know God. And because the world doesn't know God, they don't really know Christians either. So there's almost this built-in friction between those who know and serve Christ and those who are in love with the world. I think John's already made that clear. You you can't have both. You love God or you love the world. That's, That's the test. And then in verse 2, he touches on a kind of tension that maybe you've heard described in the Bible before. It's this already-not-yet kind of thing. Those loved by God are his children now, but we don't really realize or receive every benefit of that relationship here in this life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, right after... Paul has just established that we're all dead in our sin and our trespasses. He says, but God, in verse 4, and then in verse 5, he says, um, as a result of God making dead sinners alive with Christ, he has, verse 5 and 6, he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, Think about that for a moment in light of what John is saying, that we are his children now. Let me ask you a question. If you're a Christian here, do you feel raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenlies every day? Well, we say, I wish, right? I'd like to. We don't feel that way very often, not normally. But does that make it any less true? This is that already not yet tension that John is is kind of referring to here in chapter 3 this is true of us we are god's children now through christ but we don't feel it all the time and it's not something that we see in full right now we we can't see in full paul says in 1st corinthians 13:12 he says for now we see indistinctly as in a mirror but then face to face now i know in part but then i will know fully as i am fully known we can't see it all because we're not God. But does that make it any less true? The end of verse two, back in first John chapter three, John says, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. Man, what a, what an incredible thought for every believer to hear and to read this. We don't yet see it, man, but one day it's coming. It's going to happen. Now the word like here, it doesn't mean identical. Okay, we're never gonna be like Jesus in that way. We're never gonna have lived a life of sinless perfection. What the word like here doesn't mean exactly identical, it means similar to. We're gonna be like Him in many ways. And John emphasizes the truth that we will be children of the Father. As Christ is Jesus has been referred to the firstborn of many brethren doesn't mean we all become exactly like him some other denominations teach this it's not what the Bible says we don't know fully what being made like Jesus will entail but man we can be assured that it will be better than we can imagine and it's going to cause us to overflow with praise and worship for eternity. Look at verse 3. We'll close it out. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The word pure here that he uses over and over has the feeling almost of like ceremonial washings to it. And it means free from contamination. Okay, that, that makes sense. Pure, free from contamination. Jesus was clear, though, in the Gospels when talking to the Pharisees If we only wash the outside of the cup, we're just fooling ourselves. The outside of the cup can be very clean and look nice and ornate and have lots of stuff on it. But if the inside is dirty, nobody wants to drink from that. And he says our lives are the same way. We can shine up the outside. We can pretend. We can act like a good person. But if our inside has not been changed, we're fooling ourselves. Our whole lives outside and inside, must be made clean by the Savior. There isn't an area in our lives that we can hold anything back from the light of His truth. We can try, and we do, probably fairly often. But you know what? When we're doing that, when we're holding this back from the light of Christ, we're fooling ourselves. God knows. God sees. What do we do? Surrender to Him. Because otherwise... We're not purifying ourselves here as John exhorts us to, as John tells us to in verse 3. But here's the question, why? Why do we purify ourselves? Why are we supposed to live a life of pursuing holiness? Two reasons that John points out here. Number one, because he is holy, because Christ is holy. Why are we supposed to strive after it? Because our Savior did. Our Savior was. Secondly, Why are we supposed to live a life of holiness? Because he's coming again. That day of judgment will be here. The Bible says soon. We've said soon for a lot of years. We don't know when. But the Father does. And those simple truths that Jesus is holy and that he's coming again should absolutely cause us right now, today, October 11th, 2020, should cause us to live it differently. In light of his coming again, in light of his sinless perfection. And we don't do it for our own glory. We don't do it so that we can boast in how holy we are, but for the simple fact that God is our father and pursuing holiness is the natural reaction to his action of salvation. That's why I used the word tenacious effort earlier. That's why we try hard. That's why when we're faced with temptation to sin, we have the power and the ability to say no because of the Spirit within us. The reality is that the Spirit's not within everyone in this in this room, everyone listening this morning. The Spirit blows as He wills. But God also says that for anyone who cries out and calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Let me encourage you. To think that through today, right now, as we sing our last song, as we get prepared in our hearts for a baptism in just a few moments. Think about what the baptism shows is new life in Christ. Is that true of me this morning? Let's pray. God, we thank you that holiness is not... It's not a burden, Lord. The psalmist says that obeying your commands is like sweet honey to his lips. Lord, I I must admit that I don't always view your commandments, your words, that way. Sometimes I see them more as a burden. I see them as restriction for my joy, and Lord, I need you to break, break me free of that wrong theology, and convince me of the truth that only a pursuit of holiness by the Spirit results in results in a joyful life. So Lord, uh, we thank you for Christ's example. But more than his example, Lord, we thank you for who he is because of his sinless perfection. His death on the cross paid every sin of every person who believes. And so Lord, as we sit and we, or we stand and we sing today, Lord, I pray that you would Move in our hearts by your spirit. Convict, rebuke, correct, train us, Lord, that we might become mature believers in you, not for our own glory, Lord, but for yours. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.